Uh, Sam, what's up, man? I got uh, I got some good news for you. Great. Click that link I just put in there. It's uh oh. It's your lucky day, bro. Deep. Here's an article in the Financial Times called "The Alpha of Ugliness," and uh, it turns out that being ugly outperforms. <laughs> they analyzed a bunch <laughs> of investors, and the investors who were conventionally ugly. Uh, outperformed by 2%, I think. So, uh, yeah, I, I saw that, <laughs> but here's the problem. I'm, I'm a five, I'm five ten. I'm not ugly enough <laughs> to be made fun of, but I'm definitely not hot enough to be six foot to get any advantages. So, yeah. So <laughs> <Damn it>. <laughs> <laughs> that's the issue. Should I get uglier or hotter? I guess uglier. I feel like I can rule the world. I know I could be what I want to. Yeah, when I was in second grade, I really liked this one girl, and I was like, um, hey, uh, I'm going to ask that girl to the, whatever, the dance or something. We had like some party in like third grade, and um, now that I think about it, that's kind of young to be asking girls, but that's what happened. So I went up to her, or no, my friend went up to her, and he was like, hey, Sean likes you, and she goes, um, Sean's ugly. And then that was third grade. And then I'm still reeling. I'm 30, I'm 35 now. I'm hoping at 36, I'm, I'm off that. But, uh, you know, still recovering, I would say. Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. You know, finding a service solution that keeps your customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at that networking event. And HubSpot Service Hub can help. So with the service solution part, at least it makes it easy. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform. With an AI-powered help desk and a chatbot to handle your frontline tickets so you could scale support and drive retention and revenue. Visit HubSpot.com slash service to learn more. So Anand, the founder of CB Insights, tweeted this out, I think a week ago. And he does really in-depth tweets where he looks at data and stuff. And he had this one thing where he said, um, he said, uh, I found this data that talks about how good you look and your returns. And a lot of people think that the hotter you are or the taller you are, the better returns you're going to have, which, which makes sense. Taller people get more, get better treatment. And he said, no, it's the opposite. There's a uh, correlation between attractiveness or I guess an opposite correlation. So between attractiveness and rate of returns for investment managers. Well, yeah, because the, the investment doesn't know how tall you are. <laughs> you know, the tall guy probably could raise more money, but not necessarily make more money. Um, well, and it's, uh, I guess, is it the uglier you are, the harder you've had to work? Yeah, that's what I've been clinging to. <laughs> that's the story I've been telling myself. <laughs> so speaking of hedge funds or investments, let me ask you a question. Okay. Do you know anything about hedge funds? Not a lot. Okay. They What you need to know is it, they work really hard and it's a really intense lifestyle. So you understand that, I'm sure. It, would you, If I paid you $10 million a year, if you could earn $10 million a year, would you be a hedge fund would you work at a hedge fund as like a like a portfolio manager? Would you live that lifestyle for $10 million a year? I don't know the lifestyle, but probably not because I really like my lifestyle. So I would not trade it for a worse lifestyle, <laughs> if that makes sense. But like, let's assume, let's assume uh, 10 years ago, would I have made that trade? Yeah, I would have made that trade. And that's what I think they do. I think they, they make that trade earlier in their career and then they get, that's what they do. So I'm reading this book about Steve Cohen. Do you know who Steve Cohen is? He, um, he owns uh, sports teams and he's like Mets. one of the... He's one of the most successful hedge fund guys, but and I think billions is based off of him, right? Uh, roughly, yeah. yeah. So Bobby Axelrod is uh, off him, but basically Steve Cohen. He started as a uh, ba he's basically a day trader, a glorified day trader. That's how he made his first couple billion. Worked at like he made almost a few like a billion dollars day trading. Yeah, that that that's not the best ex explanation, but 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 basically, uh, it's day trading on steroids. So it's uh, kind of like calling like a bodybuilder, like oh, you like to exercise. But it was basically his own money, or he was at a. a it started with his own. So well, he started as a he started as a kid, twenty three years old. He worked at like something that looked like the Wolf of Wall Street style setup where it was like a dingy in the beginning that wolf of wall street he's selling petty stocks at like a like a garage basically yep. in a small like 30 person operation he kind of started at a thing like this the story is and and they interviewed his boss in this book they're like dude on this first day of work he came and he goes if i was you i would do that and make that trade and the the boss was like who do you think you are telling me what to do on your first day of work and steve was like that's i'm telling you that's going to work within a few hours it made eight grand of profit after two years, he was making a hundred grand in profit a day for the firm. 
Mm. And it was like a day it was like a day trading firm where they basically in the 80s it wasn't quite popular to do day trading. It was more so uh, hold something for a long period of time, right, pick question. stocks based off the businesses. He's so good because he's a savant, because he figures out some arbitrage and he's exploiting that. Why is he making a hundred grand a day? So at first it was he claimed it was intuition, which I believe. He claims that he's a bad at math, which is uncommon for a lot of these folks, but he claims he's bad at math and it was intuition. He said, I would just look at the ticker. It was at the time it was a, a physical ticker that would be on the board and it would like change stock prices. And he was like, I would just find these weird arbitrages. And it was it, he he's he would short stocks based off of like this just changed by one dollar. I think it should be fifty cents higher. I'm gonna buy it and sell it within a few hours. It's incredibly challenging reading this book to figure out exactly how he did this. That's so he frustrating claims, as an answer, by the way. It's like, uh, you know, that's like my idiot friend from college who's looking at the roulette wheel and is like, guys, I'm it's got to be red. It's been bl black four times in a row. And I'm like, that's not how this works. Um, that's very frustrating. If that's the answer of how this guy became, you know, a billionaire is good old gut. <laughs> I just don't, I don't know. It's I don't a, believe that. That sounds crazy. It's to me. very frustrating. Like and he I looked at the ticker it. like Rain Man and just figured out which direction things are going to go. Well, I tweeted out about it and Martin Scarelli, who worked in the hedge fund world, has been replying to my tweets and he's like, yeah, it does seem like intuition based, more so intuition based like when you're playing blackjack or poker, you know roughly the odds as you're going really quickly. The problem with Steve Cohen is he's never done a wonderful job of explaining exactly how he did it. However, at the age of like 32, he started his own fund. He had $10 million of his own money. And that's why he started uh, SAC. That's what the, his firm was called. And he hired um, a bunch of people and he gave them like crazy commissions where you could earn 30% of the profits you made the firm. And by the time he's like 42, SAC, which is mostly his own money, accumulates like $10 billion. However, after the first like $600 million, then it's all, not all, but it's a lot of insider trading. And they would do crazy shit. Like they would fly to conferences, take the conference speaker out to dinner at a, at a conference where they're like talking about like different drugs that might become uh, legal based off of different trials that they're currently running. They basically bribe these guys to give them information like this trial's going really bad. Actually. So he got in trouble for this or, um, or no? Because he's, I, I'm looking it up. Steve Cohen, net worth 19.8 billion and appears to be a free man. So yeah, so here's happened? the here's here's the rub. He uh, does get in trouble for it, but after he's worth already probably five or ten billion dollars, he's they do it very quietly. He's been uh -huh. very quiet for years, building accumulating about a billion dollars. The old then he does he do later, huh? <laughs> then he gets in trouble, and you want to know something? He completely gets away with it. He gets convicted, <laughs> and he gets in trouble. SAC has to shut down technically, although now it just becomes his family office. A year later, he starts another firm called Point Seventy Two. The guy, he, he did not get in trouble at all. Clearly broke the law many, 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 many times. However, as I'm reading this book, I'm reading about the, the lifestyle of what it's like. It is seven days a week, 12 hours a day, more than 12 hours Before a day. Before you do the lifestyle thing, I want to read Martin's reply to you. So you were like, this guy, Steve Cohen, fascinating. Uh, what I don't understand, you know, he's basically became worth over $100 million as a day trader on steroids. It says he followed his intuition with bad at math. What does that mean? So great question. So here's what Martin says. I studied Cohen for a good part of my life, and I think these were the key components. As a trader, he has an unbelievably capacious memory for stocks. Capacious. Wow, that's a word. I love that. I don't, I don't quite know what it means, but you'll see me sprinkling that around for, for the next three days. All right. <laughs> I guess it means good. <laughs> we'll just say good. <laughs> good or spacious. One of the two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so for any given stock, he literally knows what is the situation and controversy. This is a little bit like how it impresses some people that Kramer knows most of the stocks he's asked about. They are similar animals. Number two, he's unwavering on discipline and portfolio slash firm structure. With leverage and a diversified group of portfolio managers, the net result for investors is incredible. Other firms like Millennium and Citadel have figured this out too. Cohen is also a very smart business person, which most traders are not. He can attract impressive talent because he speaks the trader's language, whereas other similar firms don't have active traders managing the company. I think it's a competitive advantage. The style has been somewhat effectively replicated by his competitors, however, and the arbitrage has all but vanished in U.S. public equities. Yeah, so that's still not the best answer, right? That's a very, um, that answer doesn't feel good. Like, it's not giving me exactly what I wanted. He, he said one more thing that I think is great. You were like, it's crazy that he was getting, you know, 30 to 50% annual fees. He goes, remember, Martin goes, remember, that's 50% net of fees. So his fees were 50%. So basically, he had 10 years. We made about 100% a year. It's arguably the strongest stretch of high returns ever done, similar to Renaissance Capital. 
it's amazing. And this guy, he's he's sneaky. He's a sneaky guy. He's he does a <laughs> he does a lot of bad things in in this book. Like okay, he, tell me some of them. For example, um, you know GLG, which we've talked about constantly. The expert network. He was, yeah. So basically, what GLG does, I'm a consultant technically every once in a while on GLG. So uh, a bank is going to take a company public. They let's say it's um, HubSpot, for example. They want to know all about email marketing. They find email marketers and ask them about which software they use. And they want to learn about if it's a good company or not. Whatever. Well, Steve Cohen was GLG's biggest customer. He spent millions of dollars a year. He would become friends with the, quote, consultants, get their information, take them out to dinner and be like, look, just tell me the truth and right. I'll put you on salary. Tell me, like, for example, if you're uh, if you're on this board, if you work for the government and you're getting ready to approve a drug, just tell me if it's going to get approved. Tell me how the trials are going. He's and like, he just on this him. napkin, I've written the number three. And <laughs> as you keep talking, I will start adding zeros. Go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it was basic like that, like that. And then they get the information from the guys and they just they basically like they, they, they honeypot these guys, but they become friends with them, ask about their families, and then they get the information and they bail. They never see them again. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like your dating life back in the day. Actually, yeah. but by, by the way, this GLG thing is really funny. Uh, so when you do these calls, tell me if you're like me. So I've done a couple of these calls. Talk really slow. Yeah. First of all, <laughs> it's like eighth grade, and I'm trying to hit the word count. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So basically, with GLG, they pay you by the hour. You can charge three grand an hour. I become very capacious. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I feel absolutely silly doing these. Like I know in my head. Like there's an intellectual part of me that's like, of course, two thousand dollars an hour. Hell yeah, I should be making that. And you know what? This is gonna be such. This I'm giving them liquid gold. That's what in my head I say that. However, during it, I become very insecure about what I'm saying, and I'm like, none of this is special. This is all so basic. What I'm saying, and I feel like I'm a high paid escort that doesn't know how to have sex, and I'm like. I hope they're happy with what they're getting here for this <laughs> yeah. $2,000 hour because <laughs> did you ask them if it was, was good for them afterwards? This was very mediocre. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a weird thing. I don't actually do it anymore. But in this book, so one of the ways they made like a billion dollars was doing this for drugs. And they found out through their investigation that 10% of U.S. doctors admitted to being one of these consultants on some of these networks. And that's only the people who admitted it. And so <laughs> it was like a, it's like a pretty widespread problem. Uh, my takeaway so far in the book is um, if you're a white collar cr criminal, you could basically get away with it. You, you can get away with it. Um, that's crazy. So he got convicted of insider trading. And what did he have to pay? And did he go to jail? He paid billions. He did not go to jail. Wow. Maybe he paid uh, two billion, but he started a new firm the next the next year. Right. He paid two billion as he laughed uncontrollably. Um, all right. So you were going to talk about like their work culture sounded like. Um, yeah. So I got obsessed with this work culture, and I saw this um, quote by uh, Keith Raboy. And so Keith Raboy was at Pomp's conference, and he talks about nine nine six. Do you know what nine nine six is? It means Chinese work schedule. It's the Chinese work schedule. It stands for nine a.m. to nine p.m. six days a week. And he, Keith's stance, it seems, is he loves 996. And he tells a story about one of his portfolio companies. They just hired the CFO and the woman who'd got the job. She was like, I was specifically looking, looking for a 996 culture. And I Googled and I found out that on your job listing, you said that you guys were 996. And that seems crazy to me because that I don't think is a lifestyle that I want. And so I was curious about 996. And so I got down this, I went down this rabbit hole of, of, of working. So do you know the history? Have you ever read the history of like the 40-hour work week? Do you know how it came to be? Um, roughly, here's what I know. You tell me where, where I'm missing something, which is just that when we went to like the factory industrial thing, that's when the 40-hour work week of going into the, the quote-unquote office, the, the, the plant, the factory became a thing. Um, it wasn't that way before. So somewhat, yeah. So basically, uh, in the book Sapiens, the author hypothesizes that hunter-gatherers you know, we're talking pre-civilization, worked something like 30 hours a week and spent a lot of time just being idle with family. Then the Industrial Re Revolution comes along and factories and machines come about. And in the late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, there was a bunch of surveys done amongst the workers. And it was found on average, most of them were working 100 hours a week, six days a week. 
Uh, so they were working constantly, and it was a grind. There was constant like protests. There was constantly people fighting over this. There was legisla- leg- legislation that went into uh, power in both England and America in like the 1920s, where it was like government workers, you don't have to work that much. We're going to give you a normal work week. But basically, factory workers didn't get shit. Then in the 1920s, Henry Ford was like, hey, look, uh, the thing about our guys working so much and my company is so big at Ford, Ford Motor Company, I need people to buy cars because if they're working so much, they can't buy pants, they can't buy shirts, they can't go out to eat, and thus they can't buy cars. Therefore, I'm going to try this thing where we're going to create the weekend. We're going to give Saturday and Sunday off because if they don't buy shit, People aren't going to buy cars. So in the 1920s, Henry Ford says the weekend's a thing. And that was the beginning of the 40-hour work week, at least in terms of like it being Wait, systematic. Henry Ford created the weekend? Uh, he made it like a thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. He was, the, he was the first big company wow. to make it a thing. Yeah. And he, he made it a thing. And what he found was he did something crazy at the time. He goes, hey, workers, guess what? I'm giving you Saturday and Sunday off. I'm not even going to touch your pay. Your pay is going to stay the same. And that was really revolutionary at the time. His workers ended up loving him more. He also did a bunch of crazy stuff. So he built towns. So there's towns similar to what Facebook does now and Google. They actually like give you a stipend if you live within five miles of the office. Because he was like, I want you to be close to the office. I want you to be available when you can. But I'm going to give you Saturdays and Sundays off. And that was kind of the beginning of the weekend. And then since then, that's kind of become standard. Uh, uh, even though he gave them the weekend, people were still working 12 hour, hours a day. So he was, people were working 60 hours a week, but then he eventually lowered it a bit to 40 hours a week. And that became kind of what the 40 hour work week in America is for workers. And so he sort of invented that. What a, what a legend. Yeah. Well, he's done a lot of bad stuff too. So, <laughs> so I just Googled, uh, so Sundays were kind of casually off, but it was like for church, but he's the one who yeah. made Saturday also off basically. And then also the, the 40 hour work week versus 70 hour work week, which is crazy. Yeah. And he didn't change their pay. He goes, I'm going to, I'm going to give you what, what you want. What's the anyway, bad stuff Henry Ford did like how bad, how bad are we talking? Super anti-Semitic. So he big fan of Hitler, uh, wrote books called like, I think he has a famous book. I forget exactly what it's called, but it's called like our problem. And it's like basically why Jews are bad. Oh, wow. So, yeah, he so a very very imperfect person, but that's okay. We we could talk about the forty hour work week, which is interesting. Um, and so that worked out, and that's how the forty hour work week came to be. Now, over time, a lot of companies have tested f- four day weeks, and some claim that it's effective, but I think the verdict's still out. These things are really hard to measure. And then I went and read a bunch of studies on what's the optimal amount of work time. Have you ever studied what the optimal amount of work time is? No. A lot of research says that humans can only focus and concentrate really hard five hours a day. That's what some of this research says. There's also a ton of research that shows that there's like um, stupidly high, uh, it's like 30% increase of heart attack, blood pressure, things like that, of anything above 50 hours a week. And so there's like a huge issue with 996 in health. And I've read enough biographies to know there's definitely a trend. Like, can, like, have you ever heard the story of like, Rich people having in the 18, or 1900s having to go to Florida for fresh air because they needed to like relax <laughs> or they have like stomach ulcers. Have you ever like heard like there's like a, <laughs> no, I don't read history books. <laughs> there's a pretty like common story amongst tycoons. Because of air having, pollution or because of something else? Well, they were just like having nervous breakdowns. Like it, it was like a, oh. it's like a common thing amongst the biographies and, and the doctors would be like, you need fresh air. You have to go to Florida. You need fresh air. You're having a nervous breakdown. It's a very common thing of these of these guys like Joseph Kennedy. Um John Rockefeller having to retire for basically or take a three month sabbatical because they're broken. You know, John Rockefeller at the end of his life, you know, what alopecia is. Yeah, he had alopecia. So at the age of 50, he lost all of his hair. That's a stress induced disease. At least a lot of people think so. So is your uh, first of all, a couple questions. Number one, is 996 still in effect? I thought I had heard something that China was like rolling that back that they don't do that anymore. Technically, it's illegal. Um, but still, maybe but, some people are doing but it. But still, it's practice. So, okay. for example, there's a lot of quotes that says, uh, like JD.com, uh, as well as Jack Ma from Alibaba, there's quotes where they're like, look, like, do you want to be successful? If you do, you have to do 996. And they like say this on record in their WeChat talking about it. Right. So it, it's still common. I think, though, there is an interesting point here, which is I think Americans in particular don't want... You want to create a narrative about why China can potentially beat us. And you say to yourself, like, all they care about is work, 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 work. And I just don't want that life. And so 
there could be this, the case of like, well, they don't actually work significantly harder than Americans, but that's just the excuse that we're going to give in our head. Because in reality, I think a small percentage of Chinese companies are still doing 996. In general, a lot of the young Chinese are revolting against that. And that's one of the reasons why you see a lot of Chinese American workers, I think, because they prefer the American style versus the Chinese style. So, okay, so that's what's going on in China. Uh, Keith Raboy says that he runs his companies on 996. No. The guys at Barry's Bootcamp, uh, like, twice a day. What was he talking what, about? So here's what he said. So there's a company called Tava, which uh, uh, ironically is a software for, or it's a service for warehouse workers to help uh, factories find warehouse workers. He says, um, it's a 996 in the office, every single person, every single day. It's very uh, impressive, and it's not surprising why that company has done so well. In fact, or he says, this is why the Asian companies succeed, because they do 996. So, yeah, as an investor, you love when your companies do 996. Why not? Of course. <laughs> of course you love it. Hey, let's take a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. It is a podcast that we want you to check out. It's called D2C Pod. It's hosted by Ramon Berrios and Blaine Bolas. It is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. And this is a podcast about all things direct-to-consumer, D2C. It's e-commerce stores. It's how you optimize your brand. And they're talking with founders, marketers, and the platform creators about all kinds of things that you need to know for D2C. You know, website conversion, paid ads, Facebook ads, consumer trends, email marketing, if you want to know the stories behind your favorite brands, this podcast is for you. They did an episode recently about scaling creator growth and influencer incentives. That I thought it's pretty cool. So check it out. Listen to D2C Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Um, okay, next thing. Do you um, do you feel that with Hampton, you're going to be the Henry Ford of our generation and take us down to the five-hour workday rather than the eight-hour workday? Is that a thing you're doing? Because I'm trying to bring it, I'm trying to revolutionize the adult nap, right? Like, you know, the adult nap is going to be my lasting legacy. Uh, when I die, people are going to be napping in the middle of the day and they're going to every day they're going to thank Sean for for bringing this new nap culture to to adults. By the way, adulthood. naps, I've read thousands or I've read hundreds of biographies. Naps are very common amongst a lot of the people I've read about, by the way. So if it makes you feel good, naps are common. You read about legends. Legends nap. I nap. Therefore, Sean Lee equals legend. Yeah, you're Indian. You're good at math. You get it. <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, uh, do I think that? No, I think the 40 hour work week, I, I don't think it's broken. That's what I think. I, I don't think it's broken. Like how many, how many hours a day do you, are you like actively trying to work? And then how many hours a day do you think you're productive? I'm just, those two numbers. So like, I don't plant nine to six. I don't like that. That's I, I treat my running my companies. I like, I remember my parents were like, Oh, you work for yourself. You can come out to lunch with us. I'm like, no, nine to six. It's my job. I'm available and I'm working. Right. So I say that I'm nine to six. I spend a lot of time thinking. Like I literally just be sitting there thinking, writing notes. So if you consider that work, I think I work 40 hours a, a week. If you consider work like typing and actually contributing to a product, way less, right. 10 hours a week. Yeah, I do the same thing where I'm like, it's awesome. I'm my own boss. Problem. I'm an asshole as a boss <laughs> to myself. <laughs> you know, like I work harder when I'm my own boss versus if somebody else was managing me. But Nowadays with kids, uh, my schedule is very different. I basically do these sort of like three-hour sprints three times a day, but at different times. So like this right now is my first sprint. It basically starts at usually 8.30 or 9, and I'll go till 11.30 or noon. Then I go play with my kids for a little bit, which is honestly only like 20, 30 minutes, but we'll do something fun. And then I'll come back. I'll do another 90 minutes in that, that next block. Then I'll go work out. And then after the workout, I got another 90 minutes. So that's kind of like the second block is those two 90 minutes to split with a workout. And then late at night after my kids sleep, I'll do another 90 minutes. And so I don't know what that adds up to 90, 90, 90 uh, plus the three hours in the morning. But that's how much I work, which is probably like six, seven hours a day. And, and by the way, I, 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 don't, I think I kind of glossed over this, but at ByteDance, they currently have employees work six days a week every 14 days. And then uh, what's the big... Um, What's the big like phone company over there? Is it called the uh, Hawaii? How do you how do you Huey. pronounce that? Huawei. Like they routinely ask staff for six day weeks every month, um, and they give and they pay them extra for it. Right. Um, so like it's still pretty common. But at the end of a forty hour work week, where it's been a hard week, I find myself fried. Like I, I I'll sit and like either play a video game or like watch TV. Like I I can't do much. I don't know how a guy like Elon Musk or some of these folks like have in intellectual stimulation for that long. 
uh, I find it to be very, very challenging and, and I personally cannot do it. So would I take $10 million a year to be a hedge fund portfolio manager and live that life where you're on call 20 hours a day? Maybe for $20 million a year. For $10 million, probably not. I think it'd be hard. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, there's a number, right? There's a number where you would do it for a couple of years. I mean, not to put you on blast, but like you're already going to be creating that much or more value without doing it. So why would you ever make that trade, right? Like it's not, it doesn't make sense. I didn't sense say I would. I said maybe. <laughs> I said there's a number. Yeah, Th- sure. There is a number. I, I, that number has to be pretty high. 10 million, not a chance. Right. 20, probably not. I, I, I don't know. Yeah, but that sounded uh, like, uh, that's not, that probably not there sounded like, give me three more seconds of silence and I'll change my mind. <laughs> but have you ever read a book? Like, have you ever watched James Bond and you see the villain's lifestyle and you're like, that's exciting. I want to do bad stuff. That's what. It, that, that's what working that's what at a you hedge, think fund a hedge fund is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Just do it. Just do it. Hood rat stuff with your friends. That's what it feels like. You're doing bad stuff with your homies, and it, that can that does seem. Appealing. You know, the one sexy thing I like about hedge funds. So there was a guy when I was in college. Guy comes into the office. Our guy comes into our our class. Slick back hair, and I forgot his name, but his dad is like a legend in the hedge fund game. Like he was like one of the. OG hedge fund guys who made a billion dollars or whatever. This is the son. Son's got his own hedge fund. And he comes in and he just had, you know, when you like, you guys were talking before we started recording about like the, somehow the like more successful and rich people get the act, actually the more like at peace and like chill they are when you're there. They're more generous with their time, ironically, and they're uh, nicer and kinder. So this guy kind of had that energy where he was in no rush. And I just remember, I could literally feel that energy coming off. And this guy was in no rush, which was very different than every other person uh, I had who, seen. Even who was this school, person? We're always rushing from one class to the next or cramming for finals and shit like that. Like this like high achiever stress. It's just like, and who, who, who was this person? I forgot his name. Um, regardless, guy comes in and he's there to give a talk. And he says basically two interesting things that always stuck with me. First thing he said was, he, he's talking about his hedge fund and, and blah, blah, blah. And we're all kind of like eating out the palm of his hand. And he's like, you know, who here would find it fun to work at a fund like ours and, and do this, like make big bets for a living. And like, you know, 80% of the class hands up and he goes, um, he goes, okay, so look around. Here's 80% of the people, 80% of the class just raise their hand. And imagine if you all applied, because somebody had asked him a question about risk, like how much, you know, should I, should I work this career ladder or should I try this thing? That's like a little bit of a risk. And so he's explaining, he goes, look around. He goes, imagine all of you applied to this job. What would your resume look like? All of you would just give me a white piece of paper with black text. You'd put your little name at the top and then you'd put Duke University and you'd put your stupid GPA and then you put your internships, <laughs> you put four internships and you'd, you'd make it sound like you're, you changed the world in those internships. He goes, there is nothing that differentiates you. He goes, you have a degree. Great. That's table stakes. Like, you know, like. Oh, great. You went to a good school. Like, so what? So did everybody else that applies to this job. He goes, the only thing I can look at to even decide, do I want to meet this person is the bottom fifth of your resume, the very bottom 20% where it says other. And that's your chance to say other stuff you're into, your interests, your story, something you've done that's remarkable or or notable. He goes, that's the only way I'm going to differentiate between all of you that are raising your hands right now. Because otherwise you're all students. You all did an internship. You all got a three point whatever GPA. It doesn't matter. Um, that you were on student council, like no one cares. And when he said, he goes, so I would take the next three years, four years of your life after college. And I would go stuff that other column because either you're going to make it big doing something cool. Or even if all those fail, when you go to apply to a job like mine, I'm going to have some reason to actually want to talk to you. And that was one of the most, I don't know, profound things, but like best pieces of career advice that I had ever heard. And actually changed my, I went and started a goddamn sushi restaurant afterwards because I was like, that's part of my other, either this works and I create the next Chipotle or it's a great story for my other section because he's right. Like that ring that, that that was uh, the truth was told to me. And the commonality between a lot of these folks, which I I think you have, um, they play poker and they got really comfortable uh, gambling. So, so that was the other Uh, thing that stood out. He's looking around and in class, everybody's got a laptop open and he's looking around. I'm like, I could see he's like counting or something. He's like measuring something. And I asked him, I go, are you, I was like, what are you counting? What are you, what are you doing? He goes, oh, I'm looking at how many of you guys have Macs versus PCs. He goes, because my entire year right now is I'm going to make a long short bet. I'm either going to go long Microsoft and short Apple, or I'm going to go long Apple and short Microsoft. 
And he was like, I was like, what? I don't even know what, I didn't even understand what he was talking about, like a long, short sort of spread trade. And he was like, um, yeah, so like, you know, my entire, like, he's like, I'm going to make a $10 million bet or I'm going to make a whatever. He said some ridiculously big number. He goes, I just have to make one bet this year and I'm going to bet 10 or $50 million on either Apple or Microsoft here. And so I'm just trying to understand, like, what are you guys using and why? Why do you, why do you pick this? And I thought that was the coolest shit in the world. Like, that was like, you know, he could have lit up a blunt in front of me and I wouldn't have thought he was cooler than what he had just said, <laughs> that his entire year was to figure out, should he be long Apple or Microsoft? And he was just going to walk around the world trying to figure this out. He's going to make a $50 million bet on it. And I was like, that's so cool. That's incredible. And I'm sitting here playing like, poker during class you know on the one two tables trying to make 200 bucks and this guy was like gambling at a whole nother level on one concentrated bet that shit was like very attractive to me i wonder uh, which one he picked uh hopefully i think he had told us at the time i had asked him i was like so which one he's like i think apple because and he had said some reasoning because of of apple it wasn't just like apple because it's cool it was something like he was looking in the education market to figure out like basically our age cohort, what were we buying? What were the schools like recommending? And then what was like the, he had done, I forgot exactly what he was doing, but he was like looking at basically like, he thought that it was important to know what high schoolers and college kids and like young professionals were being told to buy and buying voluntarily. And if there was like some difference there, he had said something. Now this is like 15 years ago. I don't remember the exacts, but I remember it being Apple that he was leaning towards. So that's my whole summary of hedge funds, of um, the 40-hour work week. Um, this stuff interests me. Henry Ford, by the way, came up with a lot of good stuff. Invented Kingsford charcoal. Uh, that was his doing. Um, obviously, Ford, the, the assembly. He's like, yeah, I got a coal yeah, that was side, side hustle. hustle. <laughs> the uh, assembly line. Uh, the, the guy is super fascinating. A very imperfect person. Did a lot of bad stuff, too, but very interesting. Um, what do you want to do? All right, so I saw something come, come by that... Um, I think you'll find pretty fascinating. Have you heard about this company called Law and Crime? Speaking I of saw they were acquired recently. They were acquired. And so this is a media company that does a combination of like true crime plus just coverage of trials. And yeah. media company started by this guy, Dan Abrams. And they got acquired for a rumored nine figures. And I was like, wow, that's a pretty impressive exit for like this kind of like crime niche media thing. Um, do you know about this guy, Dan Abrams? He's got a, like an interesting backstory. No, what's he do? So he's basically pretty prolific with these like me- niche media sites. So 2009, he launches something called Gossip Cop. It's celebrity gossip blog, and uh, it gets to 8 million monthly uniques. So he goes into celebrity gossip. That's number one. I go to TMZ.com every day. <laughs> Homepage, <laughs> a homepage every single day, every day. That's what that, that's on my list of things that I check every morning. <laughs> that's part of your eight hour workday. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you got like the same the news websites that you check. I just want to see what's going on. I check no news websites. But anyways, this guy. So then he creates Geeko System, um, which is a Internet site for meme culture, launches that in 2010. He creates uh, something called Mediate, which is basically power rankings for media personalities. That one gets to 14 million monthly unique still going today. Uh, He launched something called Stylite, which is kind of like the same thing, power rankings, but for designers, models, writers, like people in the style business. Holy shit. He launched Sports Grid, which is a sports news business that was acquired in 2013. So he's creating a bunch of these all in this period of like 2009 to 2015, roughly. He created all of those that I just mentioned. Uh, He created one more in 2012 called Brazer, which was basically personality, like chef personalities. And um, I'm like, this guy's like, A, that's just interesting, like an interesting model. But B, like all of those are like the right niches. Like there's like, you know, missionary versus mercenary people. Like he strikes me as somebody who's mercenary where he's like, oh, these like these idiots care about like, you know, celebrity chefs. All right, here you go. I'm going to tell you every goddamn thing you need to know. News, information, um, you know, stories about these celebrity chefs. Oh, these people love um you know, whatever, whatever it is, stylized, you know, media personalities or style or celebrity gossip. Great. I'm going to create, I'm going to go fulfill demand. I got thirsty customers. I'll go open up lemonade stands right next to them. That's the, that's wow. the style of entrepreneurship that I get out of this guy. And if you Google this guy and you click images, 
most people will recognize him. Do you recognize him? I, I, I he's on MSNBC. He's on TV all the time. Yeah, exactly. He, uh, <laughs> he's like really good looking. He's got a great voice. He's always commenting on like like one another guilty pleasure. I watch Cops all the time. I freaking <laughs> love Cops. That's my favorite show. Uh, and he and they they have like a spinoff called Live PD. He's always on there saying like, oh, what she did. She's about to get charged with X, Y, and Z. Right. So this yeah, guy, he's, I know. he's basically a media entrepreneur and he's on, yeah, like all the, all the things that you mentioned. He, um, so Abrams Media, I guess, is the thing that's like launching all this stuff. One of the things he launches, so 2016, he launches Law and Crime. That's the one he just sold. It's basically, it starts, you know, legal news website. Then it's live streaming trials. Then they have a cable show. They have an OTT show. They have a YouTube channel. They got 5 million subscribers on YouTube. They cover every trial because like I'm like pretty knee deep in this SBF trial right now. Can't look away from the car wreck. You know, like rarely does news get me. But this one, I mean, I'm 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 embraced in its arms. Just lapping it up. Yeah, I'm just fully engulfed (laughs) by this SBF trial. And so um, definitely there's like this like part of our brains that's just wired to tune into the stuff. Like I watched the Depp vs. Heard Netflix show. I don't know if you saw that one. Really, really well done. Like the Netflix documentary on uh, the Johnny Depp trial. Oh, yeah. And uh, you can't, I mean, you, you watch these things and you just get fully engrossed in them. So he, you know, he sees that, creates this, and they raise five million bucks and have reportedly have sold for nine figures, so over a hundred million dollars. I don't know if that's exactly true. Uh, three years ago, the reported revenue was like 13 million top line. And so, you know, who knows where, where it landed at? Maybe it's at 20, 25 million now. I'm not exactly sure, but amazing exit and kind of amazing entrepreneurial career. He also, by the way, launched during the time he was launching true crime, uh, law and crime. He launched a Christian TV streaming service called Ambo TV, which I bet is also like, that's a, I love that niche. Um, you know, the, which the, is crazy. I mean, the guy's not Christian, um, at all. Uh, so you know? that, that's very, <laughs> I said, do you know, Dan, well, I'm looking at five Wikipedia minutes page. Ago, you didn't know the guy. You're like, he's not Christian. <laughs> well, Abrams is a Jewish last name and I'm looking at his, um, um, I'm looking at his Wikipedia and he's, he's, it says he was raised in a Jewish family and his, his father has a Wikipedia page and he, Fair enough. Okay, okay, also okay. says you win. So that's, I'm looking point, point, um, point, Sam. Um, all right. So this which is, is so, TV. so wait, wait, what's the Christian show? So a- go to ambotv.com. And so they're just live streaming like, you know, uh, I don't know, good old Christian entertainment. Uh, I don't, I don't know what they're at. It's not something I normally watch, but like you can watch basically like live, Biblical literacy. You can watch, like you know, inside one of these churches, the Christ Evangelical like church live. You can view past sermons. You can watch interviews and shows. And uh, this thing doesn't seem to have a ton of traffic on here. But let me look at the YouTube channel. I bet the YouTube channels. Nah, it's pretty small too. So the this Christian site thing, it looks like it hasn't hasn't quite taken off uh, yet. But I, I do like this niche. I feel like this could be could be successful as well. And then he has another one called Whiskey Raiders, a site that uses a proprietary algorithm to rate whiskeys on a scale of 50 to 100. Yeah. I mean, this guy just goes into passion niches, right? So it's like passionate niche. Let me create it, right? Like this is what Ramon did with the soap opera blog. It's like, wow, you built and sold a soap opera blog for $9 million. That's like incredible. How'd you even have this idea? And he was like, well, I created Facebook pages around a bunch of niche topics, wrestling, politics, um, soap operas and others and i saw that the fan page for the the soap operas was like popping off it was like the second or third most most popular one and so then he created a blog he'd never seen a soap opera in his life and created a blog where they would write spoilers and and recaps and stories about these soap operas and built up so much traffic that he was able to sell it for almost 10 million dollars without ever raising any money it was incredible by the way the the what this guy is doing uh abrams dan abrams how he's launched he's prolifically launching new stuff I think media is the best industry if your intention is to launch a lot of things. Someone kind of described it once where they told me that a media company is basically um, a collection of different projects all under one brand, whereas a software company typically is one product with added features and you're just scaling it. Um, the interesting thing about media is when you understand what types of things grabs people uh, attentions uh, attention and how to look at certain numbers to understand where there's an underserved nerd uh, uh, an underserved need and nerd <laughs> and nerd yeah uh, you can basically do that for any niche that like you like it, 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 there's a, it's a formula um, a lot different than software um, it, it's a lot, is a lot it, like that too uh, you notice that some 
somebody who knocks it out of the park with one e-commerce thing, they know that they could do this five times over. It's just, do they have the energy and the the desire to create an organization that's going to launch multiple brands versus the one, but it's so applicable to do exactly what you did for one. For but the there's next. a problem with e-commerce, which is your cash is tied up in inventory with media. You typically have more operating cash flow, And so you have more money to deploy to some of these resources. Uh, how many, how much of your, how much of your business? So you have a business, an, an e-commerce business. How much of the money is in inventory? A, a significant amount, without saying like particular numbers. Probably thirty percent in inventory. So not not not. That's not horrible. Yeah. That's not that's not horrible. Yeah. A lot of times it's worse, though. I would imagine it, it can you can go wrong if you if you mess up if you miss forecast or you get a bunch of dead stock slow moving inventory. Yeah, you can that can stockpile real quickly and, and become a big issue for you. But also, it depends how you run it. So in the same way that. There's a hundred people now trying to create newsletter businesses and those hundred are not going to have the same success that you did with the hustle or that I had with milk road. And why is that? Right. Cause it's how you operate. And the same thing with e-commerce, you know, with e-commerce, if you set up the right payment terms with your factory, like for example, like for us, we sell inventory before we have, we have to pay money for it. Yeah. So that's great. Right. Negative cash conversion. So once you get set up like that, then you're, you know, you, you're an idiot if you're, if you're losing money or you're tying up too much money in inventory, right? Because that's not necessary. Uh, if you run it well, it's when you make a mistake or thing or the market turns that, you know, you, you can get in trouble. More MFM in just a minute. First, let me tell you about one of the joys in my life. And that is a virtual assistant. You know, here's the scenario. I'm running my companies. I spend 30% of my time just doing random bullshit. The stuff that has to get done, but it's not creativity. It doesn't require me and it doesn't add a bunch of value to the business. It's just stuff. And so that stuff is what a virtual assistant does. So having a virtual assistant is a no-brainer, whether it's travel booking, email inbox, or just knocking stuff off your personal to-do list that would have just lingered there forever. I think it's a no-brainer. If you're a business owner, you should definitely do it. I think one of the best places to find an assistant is Shepard. So go to supportshepherd.com. Super affordable. It's something that um, you know you don't need to have the biggest business ever, be the biggest big shot in order to afford it. So it's amazing. Go to supportshepherd.com, check them out, and tell them I sent you. They'll take good care of you if you do that. So sportshepherd.com, check it out. All right, let's get back to the pod. Tell me about this guy, Tyler, and what his post said. I, I, I think I know who he is. Yeah, so I don't know a ton about this guy. This guy, Tyler Hodge, I've seen him on Twitter. He, he's around on, on Twitter. But he wrote a great blog post that I, I, I loved. Um, I don't know if you saw this, but it was about sardines. <laughs> Did you see uh, this blog post about sardines? So I didn't see it, but I'm pulling it up now. By the way, the blog post, it's going to make a comeback, I think. Dude, I'm with you. I read this one post and I was like, I don't know who this Tyler guy is, but I like him. I was like, I like him and I respect him. Uh, one one blog post could do that for you. It's very hard for that to happen in like, you know, a single tweet or an Instagram story or um, a, a TikTok short, right? Like it's like, it takes a little bit more. One blog post. You need more like, time. Yeah, exactly. I think podcasts work well with it, but. Um, Podcasts, YouTube videos, if they're longer worked out, it's basically the amount of, uh, time that you've taken from someone like so that's how investors. He writes this post and he's like, uh, he's like, I'm reading this book, Margin of Safety, and in it he writes about this uh, famous bubble that happened that you probably haven't heard of. Or I guess not that famous, but there was a bubble that happened that you probably are not aware of, which was the sardine bubble in Southern California. So I'm going to read it out for you here. He goes, "There's an old story about a market craze in sardine trading, where um, sardines disappeared from their waters in Monterey, and so the commodity traders started bidding up." the price of a can of sardines, the price of, of one can of sardines soared. And everybody's buying up these cans of sardines. They're making a bunch of money, flipping them. And one day a buyer decides, you know what? I'm going to treat myself to, I'm going to take one of these expensive cans of sardines. I'm going to pop it open and I'm going to enjoy. He pops it open and immediately just becomes sick. He's vomiting and he's like, oh, he's like, tells the seller. He's like, hey man, I bought these expensive sardines for you. These are no good. And the seller's like, you don't understand. These, these are not eating sardines. These are trading sardines. And he's like, uh, so then Tyler draws the point. He's like, it feels like this is what's happened in the last few years with like um, tech company valuations. He's like, there was a like there was a game to be played. You would invest in the seed round and then the A, and you're you know this company's trying to use that money to grow. It's not really profitable, but don't worry about that, right? We're losing money, but it's it's all good. We're growing, and we got this narrative, and the narrative just needed to be sold to the next round investor, the B well, round. Well, you know the the, C the, round. the better analogy for this is crypto. Well. Uh, I don't think it's quite in crypto. I mean, there is some in crypto, right? But like there's the NFT stuff in crypto. But the difference is 
um, to get to the point of what he's saying, so crypto is a different type of asset, right? Crypto is not a uh, a productive asset. It's not a cash flowing asset. So what he's talking about, he's like, you would get these businesses that would go later and later stage, and um, th- each round is getting bigger and bigger because everybody is basically it's greater fool theory, right? They're they're thinking, well, I don't care if this business actually generates a lot of free cash flow, I can just sell it to the next to the next buyer, and they would do that. They would get to the point where it goes public, uh, but now the music stopped. And these companies have to be, you know, they're opening up the cans of sardines and realizing that, oh, shit, these were not eating sardines. These are trading sardines. And so you see a company like Hoppin go from $4 billion valuation or $2 billion valuation, whatever it was, to I think it sold for like 10 million bucks or 20 million bucks the other day. Like, you know, it's down whatever, 100x from from its peak valuation just two years ago. And uh, there's another company called Better, which is like a, a mortgage company that's also like, you know, about to go bankrupt after a billion dollar valuation. And this is going to keep happening. You're going to see a bunch of, you know, these sort of dead unicorns. And in crypto, there was a, a, a version of this, like NFTs, for example. Are you buying this because you love the art? Or are you buying this because you think the price is going to go up? And up for 95% of the people, 99% of the people, it was, I'm buying this because the price is going to go up. That works until the price stops going up. And then at that point, we all are sitting here holding these like, you know, these trading sardines that we don't want to eat. Um, the difference, of course, is that, and the point that Tyler's making is that what's in vogue now is eating sardines. Companies where if you couldn't sell it to the next, but if you can't exit, if you can't IPO, if you can't go raise the next round, well, doesn't matter. Just pop it open and eat it, right? Doesn't matter. Just the company has profits. It has cash flow. So we can, we don't need to flip this to the next person. It produces enough cash flow. And, um, you know, this sounds very basic to a lot of people, like the whole idea of crypto is triggering to them or the idea of venture capital and these unprofitable tech companies that raise money at these crazy valuations. That's just triggering to them. Um, and so, you know, for the cash flow kings out there, this is like, you know, today is your day. Now is your era. You're, you're, you are now kind of like king of the hill at the moment. And I wanted to bring this up with you because I feel like you have really never gotten into any of these trading games. I have never seen you get swept up in angel investing where you're like, yeah, this, this company today, it's worth 10 million, even though it's got no product and no revenue, but it doesn't matter because they'll raise an A at 50 million. I'll be marked up five X and then it will raise a B at 120 million. I'll be marked up 10 X or whatever. I've never seen you fall into that one or crypto or really any of these trading games. You seem to be a guy who always goes into eating sardines games, whereas I've dabbled in both and made money and lost money in, in sort of both. Um, I'm curious what your reaction is to this. Yeah, so a, a bunch. The first thing is the reason I've never got into that is I think people default to being too optimistic about particular businesses. Um, you know, what's interesting is um, one of the very one of the very first signs or pieces of writing that w- humans have ever discovered. We're talking cavemen era. They wrote on the on the um, they wrote on the cave that said the generation after them is lazy <laughs> and they just don't care. And that's like a common theme. Every generation says the la- the one after them is lazy. They just don't care. They're, and their they're music whatever. sucks. <laughs> yeah, and their music sucks. It's like the same thing over and over again. And you said something about we're caught up in this at the moment. My philosophy is we have always been caught up in that. Human nature doesn't change. We have been the same for almost forever. And the way that we act today is the way we have always reacted. And so when I see new things, I think this isn't new. This has been here many, 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 many times. And my goal is to find out what has been here for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and what or thousands of years. And that is where I choose to place my time in. Um, for example, in this blog post, uh, she, he quotes Sarah Gao, who says, who's like a famous investor and apparently uh, one of her portfolio companies said, Sarah, tell all the founders their job is to generate cash flow because no one has ever told me that. And that's crazy, but that's a common thing. Yep. And I was, I'm taking this, do you know how to read a balance sheet or cash flow statement or prop PL? Yes, but you know, of course there's, there's levels to that game. So I, I, I don't really know how to read it. And so I'm taking a, uh, my intent to take a course at like, I, w- I want to do like one of these executive MBA classes, like one of these fancy ones. But before I even did this, I bought this course called the four day MBA, where this guy's teaching me how to read a balance sheet. And his whole course is summarized in a very simple way. And it's um, basically the point of cash is to generate or just to buy, uh, buy stuff that you can then sell to create profit, which that profit can turn into cash flow. And a lot of times, 
people focus on profit, but profit is a is a hypothesis. Cash is a fact. And it took me to take that course to realize and get back to basics of like, wait, everything is about creating cash flow. Yeah. And he uses this wonderful example of Enron. He's like, check this out. Look at this balance sheet. They're generating lots of profit, lots of profit. Goldman, Morgan Stanley, they're all saying, buy this company, buy this company. Their stock's great. Oh, look at great. the p The p will show you the profit. No, that's the issue is profit isn't important. Operating cash flow is. Right. On paper, they were making lots of profit. The problem is, is that it was all, they weren't like, they, they weren't actually making profit, uh, or they were rather, but they weren't creating operating cash flow. The vast majority of their cash came from financing activities, aka raising more money. And this is why there's a book called The Smartest Guys in the Room, because apparently everyone was like, oh, they'll be fine. They're the smartest guys in the room. And you see these trends today with crypto, with Web3, now with AI, before that with social media, where the smartest guys in the room say, it's okay that they're not making profit. It's okay that they're not making cash. It's okay that this valuation is huge, but that's like just a common problem that we see over and over and over again. And so I get suspicious of all of those things because I read a lot of history and you see patterns. And this is a very common thing. We have thought this way from the beginning. Um, yeah, but the, so, the story of the tech industry, like the story of all the, the, the startup industry, Silicon Valley, is that that actually was correct. Like you're saying it like uh, with social media, the story was these companies, um, you know, it's yeah, okay but most of them make. failed. Most failed. Of course, of course. Some worked. But you, that's what it, I think. What it, what it is the real the real lesson is you have to know what game you're playing. So, for example, um, correct. I, I agree. When you're playing the Silicon Valley game, the Silicon Valley game is most of these companies are going to fail or be sort of um, inconsequential to your returns. The only thing that matters when you're doing you know venture capital or, or doing tech investing is every year there's like twenty, maybe thirty companies that matter, did you get into them? How many of those did you get into? Is it zero? Is it one? Is it two? Is it three? The issue, though, is that people put too large of a percentage of their net worth into these things. That's where it becomes a huge problem. And a lot of people do that. I, I, I don't think that's true. I think most people are not even what? invested in startups. The average person oh, is not oh, invested oh, in startups, no, right? I, I, like zero. Let, get startups out of this example. You could say crypto. You could. I mean, a lot of people have gone broke because of it. Um, and at the the underlying asset still does not have like a repeatable way to deliver cash flows. But and that that's, is, a, that's, a, that's the difference. Uh, you know, uh, there are different types of assets. So for example, um, you could buy a watch or you could buy art. They're never going to produce cash flow. Uh, you can buy gold bars. They're never going to produce cash flow. There's different well, types of definitely assets. Certain types of art, certain Rolex. Uh, Ro Rolexes have grown. No, no, no. They're, no, in, they're non-productive assets. Well, they, but they are collectibles. But there is a history of... Uh, hundreds, a uh, hundred years, fifty years of repeat of people wanting to purchase it. Of course, of course, not of as course. much. That, uh, not a, not as much with crypto. Yeah, and of course, and of course that the uh, of course you don't get the same same upside because it's sort of a, a you know that game is played out. It's more efficient market versus crypto collectibles came out. So here's a new for, new version of collectibles, and in this one you could be Jack Butcher and you could make millions and millions of dollars because you understood that crypto collectibles are going to be a thing. Or you could have come in at the wrong time or put the wrong percentage. And of course, you could make money and lose money in any of these. But the idea is you have to know what game you're playing. If you're playing the game of crypto or investing in gold or investing in art or investing in watches, you're not playing the same game as somebody who's investing in cash flowing businesses. If you're investing in startups, you're not playing the same game as somebody who's investing in cash flow businesses. So I think the important thing is you have to know which game are you even playing and then what are the rules and topology of that game. So for example, with venture investing, the mindset is actually, I'm going to lose money eight out of 10 times here. And then if you go read Warren Buffett, you're like, oh, this guy's the greatest investor of all time. Let me learn something about that that I can apply to angel investing. And Warren Buffett's first rule is don't lose money. His second rule, don't forget rule number one. If you use Warren Buffett's rule, you could never be Peter Thiel. If you use Peter Thiel's rules, you could never be Warren Buffett, right? Like, you know, these are, they're different games and you, you have to know the rules of that game uh, in order to play it. What I think is interesting is that at different times, the at different times, each game might have a sort of like hot season. There's a, there's a, there is a, uh, there are these like windows where certain games are more ripe or more, um, more attractive, more lucrative to play. But my point is, you asked why I don't do this type of stuff, is I get nervous about many of those games because I believe that, for example, before startups in the early 1900s, there was car companies. Do you know how many car companies existed in the 1920s and 1930s? Tons, tons. Most all of them went bankrupt, except for like five. There was tons of car companies, and it was the exact same thing as tech companies today. 
And so I'm weary of those types of games where I, I fall a little bit more into the Warren Buffett thing where I'd rather have steady but smaller returns as opposed to big lumpy jumps. I do get big lumpy jumps, but I do those in things with things that I can control, which is starting and selling companies. I just prefer not to do it in things that right. I don't have control in. Yeah, and to be clear, you don't actually play the Warren Buffett game. You play the index investing. You know, basically, uh, I don't try to make my money on the investments. I try to be sort of safe and conservative with my investments because I'm going to be aggressive and risky with entrepreneurship. Yeah, uh, which is not what Warren Buffett does. He doesn't. He doesn't start companies. He buys companies. In, in I met Warren Buffett in the sense of um, try not to. Lose I will. Ex- <laughs> I'll try not to lose money, and I will do. I'll take a somewhat more conservative approach right. than many of my peers. Yes. 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 The startup game is a the startup investing game is a chasing and waiting game, which is a very ra- strange combo. You're trying to chase to find these one these breakouts that are going to become the, the one of the 20 companies that mattered this year, not the 2,000 that didn't matter. And then you have to play a waiting game to let those seeds kind of bloom over the next uh, you know seven to ten years. A month ago, you went to Brian Johnson's house. I want to ask you about that, or do you want to save it for Friday? Yeah, you could do it. Let's do it. Well, so Brian Johnson, the 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 crazy guy who I love, who claims he'll or he's trying not to die by decreasing his age. You went to his house, you interviewed him. That's going live soon. How was it? Did, was there any like spectacular learnings from him? <laughs> yeah, going to his house is kind of remarkable. Um, so big house, uh, not huge, but um, like nice, definitely a nice place. Um, walk in and actually meet his son first. So I see his son. His son, who's on I've the seen same, him on Instagram. He's on the same protocol as his dad, pretty much. Yeah, rip. But he's right? like twenty, uh, whatever. He's like twenty years old or nineteen years old or something like that. And so he's like, I think he's in college or going to college, something like that. He, he's super ripped, super kind guy. And you know, I was like, so like, what's it like to be you know, eat lunch with your friends and you've got the green sludge and they're you know they're eating nachos or whatever. And he's like, yeah, it's cool tonight. I don't care. You know, I'm doing what I want to do. And he's like. You know, the, the independent mindedness that it takes to live a lifestyle of Brian Johnson, you can see like, you know, from as a, even just as a parent, how that like shapes your kids to be a little bit different. And yeah, you're like, you know, uh, oh, so you're supportive. emotionally healthy. That's he was boring. like, you know, I, he's like, I was like, what do you think would be great out of this interview with him? And he was like, you know, I hope you clear up like some of the misconceptions. Like there's a bunch of misconceptions as to why he's doing this. And if people understood why he's actually doing this, they would feel a lot differently about what he's doing. And um, and so, you know, I just I enjoyed that got a tour of his house, showed us, you know, showed me where he works out, how he, where he eats. He opened up his fridge and literally, I was like, let's see what's in here. He opens up his fridge and there's literally nothing in the fridge. <laughs> there is like, there is absolutely nothing in the fridge. There's like one bottle of red wine on the side. And he's like, and then he's like, oh yeah. Um, he like opens up his, free, <laughs> he opens up his freezer and there's like some medicine in there. I'm like, oh, what's that for? He's like, Oh, that's like this drug that they give to people with leukemia, but I just take it proactively. <laughs> I was like, oh, oh, great. Okay. oh cool. Um, you know, you're trying to find rapport when you go to someone's house. And I was like, so I wear this Fitbit. Um, I'm cool. I'm into tracking too, right? Like, <laughs> yeah, I work out sometimes. Uh, I eat, sometimes I eat chips. Uh, you know, like, you know, it's like, wow. It's literally like meeting a, a bit of an alien person because his lifestyle and his discipline and his values and his uh, priorities are just very, very different than mine. But also very cool, very inspiring. He's very, a very cool guy. So he was um, like, when you go to someone's house, you meet somebody and they're off camera. Within three minutes, you get a vibe of like, what's this person's vibe? Some people will give you a hardcore fuck off vibe. Some people are kind of like, a, let's get this done, you know, vibe. And he was totally different. He was very kind, very curious. Uh, you know, you know, it felt like, you know, respectful, uh, very, very respectful, what, very nice. What was he curious about you? Um, well, first he was just like uh, thankful. He was like, oh yeah, the first episode we did was a lot of fun. The one that we had him on a long time ago. And he's like, that really kind of like, you know, helped get the word out there, got a bunch of good messages from it. And that led to more good things. So I think first thing was like, kind of like, thanks for, you know, Thank you. thanks for doing yeah. that. Um, that was the first thing. The second thing was like, you know, how do you react to this? He's like, so I'm curious, like, what do you think of this? And is this something you would do? And how can I make this more approachable? And like, what do you find? Um, you know, he was like, almost like doing a bit of research in a way to like, versus just being a know-it-all, like 
I already know the answer. I have the answer. You guys are all idiots for not following, Ver, you know, versus having an open mind on, on you know, what's a null, you know, a, a person who's not in the protocol. What's their reaction to this? And did he uh, have help running around his house? Like doctors he and has, shit? Uh, he's like kind of like number two person. She like helps do a bunch of things, um, but not like, it's not like house help. That's like his, like, you know, she's like. No, I meant his, like his, nurses. Oh, there was no doctors or nurses there when I was there. We went up to like his room where he's got like all the heavy machinery to like measure your skin and then measure your eyes and measure your ears and all that stuff. And I was like, I was like, so you're really measuring like every organ separately. He's like, of course, you know, skin is the largest organ in your body. It needs to be healthy. And like, <laughs> you know, my eyes are important. That's how I see. And I'm like, well, when you say it like that, yeah, sure. Um, I was like, so what's the weak link? And he's like, left ear. Uh, or like one right or left ear. I can't remember. What he's And I was like, he's like, I have the ear of like a 70 year old. And I go, why? He goes, from shooting. He's like, you know, I used to whatever. He's like, one ear is down, but the other ear is exposed. And so he's like, when I would shoot that loud uh, gunshot that I used to do, like, you know, with some frequency, it messed up my ear and it's very hard to rejuvenate or recover an ear. And he's like, so, you know, this goddamn thing is, is the weak link. Did you change anything in your life after seeing him? I tried his protocol for about 20 days. Um, so no I No way. Yeah, so I ate the, I told my chef, I was like, hey, this is the new thing. I, w- I would like some sludge for lunch, and then I want some nutty pudding. And um, and I tried to buy, I didn't do all of his supplements. That's the one thing I didn't do, because to do his supplements, you need like 65 things that I couldn't even source online. I was like, how the hell do you do this? And did you feel good? I mean, it definitely felt light, uh, lighter, like lighter weight. Like you can literally feel your body has like less baggage on it you know, when you're doing it. However, I... Um, I really detested that, like the main meal, the like kind of lentils and green stuff. And the one I had, the one I, when I followed the recipe did not taste like the one he had his, his house. So I think he's got like new versions of the recipe that are better tasting. That's so fascinating. I'm seeing a lot of people, there's a whole subreddit of people saying they're living his life. Well, there's a, uh, there's a group of people like living Francisco his life light that are doing this. So, uh, they hold what's called tea parties, which is a testosterone party. So you, it's a bunch of guys that get together. They have a tea party where you get tested and you get your testosterone levels and you find out, you know, do you need to be taking testosterone or what? And then that same guy has created a meal delivery service called the blueprint delivery service, which is takes Brian Johnson's meal plan and makes it easy to do. Cause again, that's the, that's honestly the hardest part of the whole thing. It's like, it's not easy to just do it. And there's like, it's hard enough to stick to something. It's if you add a bunch of friction of making it hard to even do, that's that's pretty tough. So I think it's great that somebody's doing that. I think that's honestly a good business idea because when I met with this guy, I was like, oh, between the first time we talked to you and now, he is way more famous. And then between now and where he's going to be in like sort of three years, you could tell this guy is just going to become one of the most well-known people in this world. Like I think that his story is going to be one of the most well-known people in this world because he is essentially donating his body to science while he's still alive, (laughs) which is like just a crazy thought. And he said this during the interview, he goes, a bet against me is a bet against AI. And I probably wouldn't bet against AI. And I go, what AI? What do you mean? He goes, well, I've basically handed over my body and the decisions I make for my health to whatever the technology tells me is optimal. And so if you think this is not going to work, you're basically saying that science and technology is not going to make better decisions than the average human. Like, no way. Of course, it's going to make better decisions. And I'm just going to do what the data tells me, what the algorithm will tell me to do. And he's like, long term, that's AI. And he goes, a bet against me is a bet against AI. And then he, the, you know, the crazy thing, by the way, and this is in the interview, and I don't know how people are going to receive this because it's like kind of intense. The interview is a bit intense. He's like, um, he's basically like, I'm competing with Jesus. And he doesn't say that, but he keeps comparing himself to Jesus. And I'm like, that's kind of blasphemous. So what What do you mean? <laughs> and he's like, well, here's the thing. He's like, uh, I was told, because he grew up pretty, like in a very religious like upbringing. He goes, I was told do X, Y, Z, and then you'll die. And then after you die, you go to heaven. I have a different offer for you. Do X, Y, Z, and don't die. And he's like, that's my whole thing. Don't die. If you're against me, you're on team death. If if you're with me, it's team don't die. And it's like, that's how simple he's boiled it down to. And I'm like, well, you're still going to die. 
Like you, the current thing is you're aging slower, but you're still aging. And that's where he was like, correct. That's currently what's happened. Yeah. Plus for the, now, the better the tech gets, the better the AI gets, the more I'm able to experiment, the closer I get to just slowing down the point, the, the speed of aging to the point where I'm not going to die. One of the takeaways I have is what he has done. It's significant. But you can do a version of this where you dedicate your life or it's just six months to something and like some crazy experiment and talking about it and you could build a career. Like another example of this, this is that's way more attainable is, you know, the carnivore diet is a thing right now. Only, you know, be one of these guys that only eats meat for six months. That's challenging, but it's not that challenging. And you could build a career out of that. And that is like really interesting. So he's 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 spent a lot of money. I think he says he spends two million or a million dollars a year that's out of out of this world for just about everyone but there are other experiments that you can do and it becomes your identity and you can build a career about uh, around that tim ferris did that a little bit with the four-hour body where he tried things that weren't crazy but he did a really good job of explaining it and making that part of his identity and he built a really great career around it and i think that's really fascinating Uh, that's a takeaway i have which is can you dedicate six months to something and talk about it and will that actually change your life for like for the purpose of actually talking about it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's totally true. And one of the, the one of the cynical ways to look at Brian Johnson is he just did one of the greatest pre-launch marketing campaigns of all time because now he's rolling out his olive oil and he's launching his like, you know, blueprint, like supplement pack or whatever ability for anybody to follow his protocol simply. I don't think that's cynical. I don't think that's, that's... Tr- I don't think that's true at all. The guy's way too rich to like become an olive oil salesman. You know, like I, I doubt that, you know, He's got $800 million or whatever. Like, you know, he sold his last company for $800 million. I don't think that he's doing this to launch a new supplement brand. I don't think that was his intention at all. I genuinely believe that he needed some purpose in his life. And he decided he found purpose and meaning in doing this. And now he's trying to like, just do it at level 12. So he's like, cool. And, you know, for most people, they can, they can find some purpose and feel good in exercise or taking care of themselves. Um, he just turned that dial up to level 12. And that's what I see out of him. Well, that's awesome. And you know, that's, you, um, you don't want necessarily want to also be at level 12 because the wheels start to come off when you're at level 12 and, and it's pretty intense, but it's cool. It's very cool that there are people who live at level 12. There's, I'm glad that Michael Phelps exists. I am glad that Elon Musk exists. I am glad that Brian Johnson exists so that you can see what level 12 looks like. And then you dial that down to whatever makes sense for you, but you can take inspiration. You, you at least know what level 12 is. What I say about those people is I say, I know two things are two things for sure. I'm, I love that they exist and I'm not them. Right. Uh, that, that's what I know. Um, well, that's sick. Um, I'm excited to see the uh, episode and uh, I guess we'll end there. That's the pod. I feel like I can rule the world. I know I could be what I want to. Uh, I put my all in it like no days off. On the road, let's travel, never looking back. Like-